the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland. Welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined tonight by Rotographs contributor Brandon Warren. And today we'll be discussing the first post-non-waiver trade deadline deal, as well as the hottest athletic of them all. First, we're going to start off with the most interesting player alive today. And he's probably the most interesting player alive of the past two years. It's Mike Trout. Wouldn't you say so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're looking at a guy who's actually playing better across the board than his MVP caliber season last year. So, yeah, I mean, he's absolutely fascinating right now. Yeah, he's actually hitting for slightly more power. He actually has a higher Woba than last year. The only difference, though, which is a little suspect, is his defense. I mean, this year he's played center field uh, the majority of the time, well, he's switched off between left and center, but his center field UZR 150 is actually negative this year. Uh, it was significantly positive last year. He was one of the best defensive center fielders in the game. So I wonder what that's all about. I mean, supposedly he gained weight in the offseason. I wonder if that's affecting his range at all. I, do you have any clue? I mean, have you watched Angels games? Because I have no insight whatsoever on this, so I can't add anything whatsoever. Well, it does make you wonder if the true Mike Trout is somewhere in the middle or if he's going to grow into a middle-of-the-order bat that needs to play a corner, not because he can't handle center field, but because he might just be better off there because Peter Borges is still around, and I don't know if they'll trade him, keep him, what exactly will happen because of all the money tied up in that outfield. But he's he's been absolutely phenomenal, and yeah, it makes you wonder with year-to-year variants like this if he's really somewhere in the middle, if he's as good as he was last year and he just has had a bad season. There's a, there's a lot of questions there that I, I don't really know the answer to. Yeah, what about his speed? Because last year, 49 bases in 54 attempts. And this year, he still has a good success rate, 26 out of 30. But his steals rate is just down. I mean, if you assumed 600 at-bats this year, you would have maybe projected like 55 steals. And at this point, he might not even reach 35. Do you? Yeah. Again, speculation in the offseason when he came to spring training – uh, a little heftier. They, people thought, oh, he's not going to steal as much. And, and that's exactly what's happened. So do you think that he's more of a 30-steal guy, or is he just down this year for whatever reason? He'll rebound. He'll be back up to 40 or 50 next year. Well, what's hard to tell is what the difference is with his weight, if that's mattered at all. A big thing, too, is the Angels have been worse this year. They've just been terrible. And you're not going to try to steal as many bases and try to manufacture offense when you're not in games as much as you are, at least at least in my view. I think also he's just going to become one of those middle-of-the-order bats that they're not going to want to run as much with because you don't want to sacrifice him you know, jamming a shoulder, jamming a thumb, jamming a knee, sliding into second base when the, the value of that extra base is marginal to what he provides to you when he's healthy. Yeah, this is true. I, the thing that jumps out at me is he has eight triples this year, which is exactly the total he had last year. And I look at triples as another speed stat. And so that suggests that his speed is basically the same. And if you look at his infield hit percentage, it's higher than last year. So I don't think he's lost any speed at all. It's probably just an organizational thing that he just hasn't felt the need to attempt as many steals as last year as opposed to a loss of speed. Yeah, he has more doubles too, which is kind of wild when – you know, he's 25 games behind last year's pace already. 
Yeah, that's also interesting. You know, when I'm looking at his power, his batted ball distance is only about 282 feet, which is barely above the league average. And obviously last year's power was kind of a big surprise. Nobody expected him to be a 30 home run guy already. Maybe at his peak, but not already. And his average batted ball distance, again, suggests more like a 15 to 20 home run guy. So you wonder what he's doing to get by, past this, this distance and, and how his home run per fly ball rate is so much higher than that distance would suggest. Yeah, it's almost as though he's maximizing attempts in some kind of way that would make you believe that he could actually control that. I don't. It, it defies the logic of what we're led to believe with all these rates. I mean, he hits healthy amount of line drives, gets a number of ground balls too, and he's still got the wheels to leg those out. But it'll be fun to, to kind of chart his evolution as a player because, like you said, he's already the most interesting player alive. That's right. I don't think there's any further he can go. Take that, Yasiel Puig. <laughs> You're probably right, though. I don't think you can be much better than a 10-win player. That's right. All right, let's move along to some two-start pitching strategy talk. You've been writing that column all season long. So is there anything along the way this year that you've basically learned as the season has progressed about maybe – because it's it's always tough on do you go with the the worst pitcher who has better matchups or the better pitcher with worse matchups and that type of thing. Is there anything that you really felt you've learned along the way doing this every week? Well, this season I've charted my progress, and I've – Starting this week, this last previous week, put a link up to my spreadsheet so people can kind of see the stats that I've accumulated. I've I've put them into the column, but I found it's kind of tedious to put it up there every single week. Yeah, so, because I just looked at your column uh, before the show, and I didn't see a link to that. So It's on the bottom. Yeah, it was on the bottom, and I linked it. And so basically what I found is it's uh, really hard to uh, – yeah, it's – it's really hard to project wins, and so <laughs> I, I, I like to go for the matchups and just maybe maybe nail some of the other stats. And I don't know. I mean, I like the high ceiling guys, but also if there's like a Jake Westbrook with a couple decent matchups, and you know he's not going to kill you like he did to me last week or the week before. It, sometimes sometimes you'll go with a safe matchup, and so I like to change it up a little bit. I might go with like a a Felix Dubrant who throws hard but is kind of wild. Like last year, he was one of my horses. This year, yeah, I might go with a Kevin Correa on two good matchups or a Jake Westbrook or like a Carl Pavano in previous years, you know, a safe guy who might give you nice solid outings, but he's not going to strike out more than a guy every other inning. So I was actually at a wedding last night, and I made a mistake. So I I talked to the guys that you know, I didn't know these guys. I introduced myself, and they started talking about baseball. And the guy next to me is like, my pitcher gave up 10 runs last night. So I said, oh, you had Francisco Liriano, didn't you? And he's like, yeah. So I tell him, you know, I write for Fangraphs, big, big mistake. It was literally every 10 seconds they were peppering me with another question. I'm like, seriously, we're getting wedding speeches here. You're talking over the speeches. Come on now. I, I you know, <laughs> as much as I love fantasy, I want to hear these speeches. Anyway, I said, Liriano in Colorado, I have him on my team. He was on my bench. I automatically bench pitchers no matter what at Coors Field, which begs the question, how do you deal with two-star pitchers at Coors Field if one of them is at Coors? I will usually sit a pitcher against the Rockies because they've hit pretty well as as well. But it is something you have to be gun-shy about. But if they're facing, say, the Padres or the Yankees this year, the Marlins, the Astros, I might be a little more risky and, and take that 
because the first half matchup or the other matchup is so enticing that I hope for, you know, at the very least, maybe six innings, four earned runs and a win and not, not a blow off. Cause if you get a nice, a nice outing and a decent outing, you can usually skate out of there with like a three, two Oh or three, five Oh ERA. And so sometimes it's, it's all about getting, you know, I shoot for league average or better. And, I think league average has been in the the low fours for an ERA. So if you can get out with that, that's pretty good. But what the Liriano outing teaches us is that no matter who you are, the potential in Coors Field, yeah, Cargo is on the DL right now, so their offense isn't as scary. But the potential against the Rockies in Coors Field is for an outing like Liriano had, 10 runs and two innings. And that potential is always there, and it's much greater at Coors Field than against any other team in any other ballpark. So I feel like I would be – Totally nervous starting a mediocre four-plus ERA guy with one starting course field, even if the other matchup is pretty decent. Yeah, it also makes you gun shy with guys like Tyler Chatwood. Uh, one of my wrecks this month or this week rather is Ulysses Shasin, and you know it's 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 different with guys that pitch there because you know, maybe they cut the ball differently, they do different things here or there. But with fringe pitchers who are on a roll for the Rockies like uh, Juan Nicasio maybe in the past, you do have to be a little more careful because it's it's just ma- mistakes are magnified in that park times 10, it seems like, compared to maybe like a PNC or uh, you know or the, the Padres player, anything like that. Yeah, I think I would also be more concerned about guys that rely on breaking pitches, like a curveball, like maybe an Adam Wainwright, just because curveballs don't curve as much at Coors Field. And so guys who throw a lot of breaking balls – are going probably going to be hurt more than guys who maybe rely on a changeup, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. I would I would do that too. No, I don't have any data to back that up, and I, I think it would be interesting to look into the types of pitchers who have more success. I, I remember in the past the Rockies tried to figure out who would have more success. I remember when the the late Daryl Kyle, they uh, had signed him. I believe he was a fastball curveball guy, and obviously he didn't work out very well. No, he didn't do well out there. That's, that's absolutely true. All right, let's move along to that first post-non-waiver trade deadline deal. Alex Rios, the Rangers finally got their replacement for Nelson Cruz. And obviously a big upgrade on the offense because uh, the White Sox were one of the worst offenses in the AL and the Rangers are, are better. Does this boost Alex Rios' value at all? I think the, the issue might be that I don't know if he'll run as much in Texas because I haven't really looked into how much they run, but... The one thing that he's done well this year, I think he's got 26 stolen bases, so it's been kind of a sneaky part of his value. Otherwise, when you look at who he's replacing, which is Nelson Cruz, if you take away slugging, they're virtually the same player. you got a, like a 270 hitter, 330, 340 on base. And so it's it's a very similar player. you got you got the stolen base value from Rios, whereas Cruz is pretty much station to station. It, in, a, in the course of a month or two, you could be convinced that it's you know, somewhat similar player based on variations and all that. So I think it's a good move for the Rangers in that respect. I'm not sure, though, yeah, if Rios, if you want to pick him up for, for boost value down the stretch, you know, maybe maybe go get him. But I, I think he should be a similar player. I don't know if he's going to get any kind of boost, though. Yeah, I'm basically on uh, the same level that I don't think. I think the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, he's getting out of a, a terrible offense in Chicago. He's moving into Texas, and this is going to be a real nice boost to Alex Rios' value. But here's the thing. The ballparks, yes, uh, the ballpark at Arlington is a hitter's park, but it's better on the home run front for lefties. So in Chicago, in U.S. Cellular Field, that's a much better home run park for righties than in Texas. So... 
all else equal, Rios is going to lose some power from the ballpark. However, uh, Texas, it's uh, a better park just for hits, singles, and doubles. So his BABIP should get a boost. Uh, the other negative is that he actually drops in the order. He was batting third for the White Sox, and he was batting sixth versus a right-hander in his first game. And then today he was batting fifth against a lefty. So he's going to lose some at-bats. That's going to probably hurt his run score, uh, runs score total. The RBIs probably will be similar just because he had bad on-base percentages in front of him in Chicago, and now he'll probably have some better on-base percentages and more guys on base in Texas. So even with fewer at-bats, he'll probably have similar opportunities to drive and run. So I think less runs scored, same RBIs, less home runs. I don't think his steals will be affected, though, because if you look at Leonis Martin, Elvis Andrews, they're both stealing a lot of bases at the top of the order. So I think the uh, the Rangers are fine in terms of running, and he'll continue to run. Yeah, the only worry I'd have is if he's in the middle of the order more so than uh, the upper area. I, the, the thing, too, is, like you said, the White Sox offense is bad. Although I, I was surprised to see that Gordon Beckham was hitting over 300, which is a – I haven't kept up on him as much this year because I don't own him in any leagues. But he's been a, a pleasant surprise for them. But, that, yeah, that offense in, in the south side of Chicago has been brutal. So going to a better offense will hopefully yeah, give him some more opportunities for runs driven in, runs scored. But all told, I'm not going to say he's a big lottery ticket or anything like that. Yeah, basically same old, same old for Rios for the rest of the year. As we both agree on that. Yeah, I, there was times I thought he had cashed out too in rough years for him. So he's a, he's a weird player because some years he'll he'll go off and hit 20, 25 home runs, and then other years you know he'll have a 300 weighted on base average. So he's just he's just a weird guy to project. Yo, know, he's actually been pretty weird this year because he hit 10 home runs at the end of May. He was at 10 home runs. He's only hit. <laughs> His power has completely uh, evaporated over the last couple of months. Yeah, and in Toronto there was talk of, well, when is this power going to come? When is this power going to come? And then it kind of came and went and came and went. And if he has good years, he's really good. And if he has bad years, he's just awful. So he's a weird guy. And and they also, I believe, have him signed for next year at the same rate. And then there's a a, a trade kicker where his option goes up by 500000 for 2015. So... It's, it's an interesting trade for the Rangers because Cruz will be back presumably at the beginning of next year. So they're going to have some decisions to make. Yeah, I mean, so far it's been a tale of two halves for Rios. First two months, Woba of 375 and 348. Last two months, sub 300 Wobas and sub 100 isolated slugging rates. So he's just offensively been absolutely missing these last two months. And obviously the Rangers are going to cross their fingers that the good Alex Rios is going to show back up for these final month and a half. Yeah, he's a, that's a microcosm of his career. Jekyll and Hyde, when, when you not really know what you're going to get on any given season, any given day, any given month, it's just too tough to tell. Yeah. All right, let's ha- move along to Josh Reddick, who has had one heck of the last couple of days. Three home runs on Friday, two more home runs on Saturday – Today, he failed to hit a home run, and everybody on Twitter is wondering, what is wrong with Josh Reddick? <laughs> no, that didn't actually happen. But, I mean, it kind of came out of nowhere just based on the disappointing season he's had so far. But most of the disappointment has been in his batting average. He's only hitting 214 right now. What do you make of this guy? I mean, he obviously missed time due to a wrist injury, and... Uh, and last year was a surprise to begin with, so you kind of come back to this year and be like, oh, he's just reverted back to this not being a very good player. But, I mean, what, what, what do you think of him for the rest of the year? 
Well, I did see, sort of feel he was overdrafted based on 32 home runs. And obviously the war is nice, but a lot of it was tied up in his defense. He, he's, he struggled this year. I mean, that's that's pretty blatantly obvious. But you see a lot of his rates are either in the ballpark of what they were last year or better. We're talking about walk rate, strikeout rate. Now, the batting average on balls in play has tumbled down to 235 from 269 last year, and that certainly can tell part of the tale. But when you think about how hot he's been the last couple of days, that's jumped his OPS from 613 to 684. And at this point in the season, that's a huge jump. That's crazy. So I think, yeah, it's absolutely unbelievable. So to, to need five home runs to do that, though, that also tells you how poorly he'd played up to that point. Yeah, you know what also is really crazy is that last year – in his breakout season, he had a 14 home, uh, 14% home run per fly ball ratio, which is not crazy. All his home runs came because he hits a ton of fly balls, nearly a 50% rate. His batted ball distance, though, was below the league average last year. He was only at 277 feet. So we were talking about Mike Trout and having a ridiculous home run per fly ball rate given his batted ball distance. Well, Reddick was the same way. Uh, this year, his batted ball distance is actually up at 285 feet, which is actually higher than Mike Trout. And and now Reddick's home run per fly ball ratio is a more reasonable 10%. So I think that three home runs followed by the two home runs was basically what he was due for. I mean, I think he'd be he was getting a bit unlucky in terms of the home runs, and he was overdue for some power. And so this just merely brings him back to where he's supposed to be rather than like, ooh, now he's going to have a hot well, last month and a half and you got to get him on, his, on your team. Yeah, it's regression in the sense that when people think regression means only backwards, it's, it's just regression in terms of progression. He's, he's, you know, if you look at his numbers as a whole and don't look at the splits, you're like, oh, this guy's been terrible. But, but the, the rates and all that kind of tend to add up more with 10 home runs rather than five. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And it's actually funny because I was starting Rajay Davis in one of my leagues for the last week thinking he was going to be an everyday guy with Melky Cabrera on the DL. For whatever reason, that hasn't happened. They chose Emilio Bonifacio to start every night instead of Rajay Davis. So I'm just getting zeros every single day. And um, this was yesterday. What was it? I think it was Friday night. And uh, I was in uh, – I was maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was yesterday afternoon. I don't know. I was away from my computer. I was on my phone, and I'm looking for a replacement for Rajay Davis. And I see Josh Reddick hits three home runs, and I need an outfielder. And I hate being that guy who sees a player hit three home runs and immediately pick him up the next day, because I always laugh at those people. And that ended up being me because I'm like, oh, I'll pick up Josh Reddick, and he and he rewards me with another two home runs. So yeah, I was. I think I think you're laugh, laughing last there at least for right now. Now maybe. You can flip them to some, somebody like that guy now. <laughs> that might be your, your angle here. Yeah, this is true. Because I don't know. I mean, he's still – he hits a lot of fly balls, and he hits a lot of infield fly balls. And so he's a type of guy who's going to have a low Babbitt. But 235 is really low. It's not something that I expect to continue. But still, even if his Babbitt does jump, he's still no better than like a 250 hitter. Yeah, I think if you would run his figures in like an ex-Babbitt cruncher to figure out what his expected batting average on balls in play, it's probably not nearly as low as 235, but I'm not sure if it's 270 or 269 like he had last year either. It might be somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I mean the good thing is is that he's still stealing bases. Last year he stole 11 in uh, about 611 at-bats. This year he has 8, so extrapolated over the same playing time, he'd be nearly at 20 steals. So this is like a 2020 guy in a full season, and that's that's pretty darn good. Yeah, it's a guy you can watch and 
try to squeeze value out of maybe later on, that's for sure. All right, let's move along to, well, we're going to stay in the state of California to Los Angeles. And finally, the official move that Ernesti, Ernesto Frieri is no longer the closer, which is what we've, what I've at least assumed for the last couple of days. I picked up Dane Delarosa in a couple of leagues, and no officially official announcement has been made on who the replacement closer is going to be. But to me, I personally think it is Dane De La Rosa. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I tend to agree with that. And you look at De La Rosa's numbers. I mean, he's a 30-year-old guy who's only thrown something like 65 career innings. So it's hard to project a, a great ceiling for him. I mean, he throws hard. But you look at his rates, 8.0 strikeouts per nine, 1.23 whip. You know, throws 95, 94, 95 miles an hour. There's some projection there. But he doesn't look like a guy who's going to light it up. He just seems like kind of a steady... You know, solid ninth inning option. Now, the biggest thing there is this is a bullpen that's been in flux all season long. They've used 24 pitchers on this team total. 17 different people have been ex- exclusive relievers. It's 18 if you count Jerome Williams, who started more than half of his game. So, I mean, you're talking about a bullpen that's consistently rolling through guys. And so to, to get any stability in the ninth inning is going to be huge. Yeah, and actually the latest news on the Fangraphs page was from yesterday – and that is that De La Rosa will likely be called upon if there is a save opportunity Saturday. And that coincides with Frieri officially being removed from the closer role. So it seems like De La Rosa is the man now until he blows his first save. I think you're probably right. And the funny thing is, if you look at the, the walks, uh, the whip, I guess I should say, and I know whip isn't a, you know as, as fondly looked upon in the symmetric community maybe as it has been in the past, but I like to think of it as like a pitcher's blood pressure where you if it's up you can sense you know issues in the future the whips of this bullpen are just unbelievable i mean they're all one three five one four oh or higher and so you get a guy like de la rosa who's at least got you know a reasonable whip i think it's like one two two one two three he's the only one who's keeping the bases relatively clean and that's you know, that's what you need in the ninth inning yeah and he induces a lot of ground balls and and you don't normally see that in a closer because they're usually a, a high strikeout fly ball pitcher because they usually throw high fastballs. But you see Jim Johnson in a similar mold, tons of ground balls, throws hard but doesn't have a great strikeout rate. Dane De La Rosa actually has a pretty good strikeout rate, mediocre control. But if he's reducing all those fly balls and the home runs, I mean, that's something that you want to see in a, in a closer. So I think right now he is the best guy, especially in terms of skills in the bullpen. And I think he can run for it, run with it for a while. Yeah, the one thing that's strange is that the, the Rays let him get away, and usually the, if a pitcher has any value that can be squeezed out of him, the Rays are going to find it. And so, you know, it, it does make you wonder where this is all coming from, but he's pitched very well, and it's not like it's a tiny sample. I mean, 53 innings, 53 appearances, that's, for a reliever, a decent sampling in one season to at least give a guy a shot, if you ask me. All right, let's continue our California theme and move along to San Diego, where Tyson Ross is back in the rotation. And damn, Tyson Ross is pitching well. Four starts, his last four starts, 133 ERA. That's only four earned runs over 27 innings. Over a strikeout per inning, 3.3 walks per nine. What is going on here? Is he suddenly worth a, a shot in mixed leagues? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he's, he throws relatively hard. Gets about a league average strikeout rate. The walks are a little high, but not all that concerning. But you love the ground ball rate in conjunction with a league average or better strikeout rate. That's that's just for me. That's that's what I love. And uh, and 
you know, he's, he's three and one in the last four starts, four and runs in 27 innings pitched, 28 strikeouts. Now, he did lose to the Yankees, who have one of the worst offenses in all of baseball. He's beat the Reds, the Diamondbacks, and the Brewers, who are all about league average offenses. So he hasn't really faced any kind of juggernaut or anything like that. But I still think there's projection in his peripherals and the fact that he's going to play half of his games at Petco, where you know you can feel pretty confident in giving this guy a shot down the stretch. The thing with Tyson Ross is that if you look at his velocity – First off, you see that his velocity has climbed in season this year. And he's been averaging basically 94 or so with his fastball uh, over his last four starts. And then if you compare his velocity over the season, which is also 94, with last year, he was only at 92.5 last year. And the last three years, he was between 92 and 93. So his velocity is up significantly. And, and that's also led to more swinging strikes. And again, if you look at his game log and you click over to his plate discipline, you see his swinging strike percentage for these four starts. They're freaking amazing. The lowest swinging strike rate over these last four starts is 12.2%. And that was his first start. His second start, he induced a swinging strike percentage of 17.8%. He followed that up against the Yankees with a 15.8% mark. So his stuff, I haven't been able to watch any of his starts, but Clearly, his stuff has been absolutely filthy these last four starts. And it's clear that there's something that's changed. And, and namely, it must be the increased velocity has helped his other pitches look even more dynamite. Well, it sounds like he's got a pretty good slider, too. So I think if you look at an increased velocity as a fastball slider guy, and you can mix those two things there, I mean, that's that's basically all you need is a couple pitches like that. And it, obviously, he's flexing those those muscles right now. Yeah, and, and the fact that he is a fastball slider guy worries me a bit because usually those guys have platoon issues. And sure enough, he has been worse against lefties. His ex-fip is 429 versus a, a 362 ex-fip versus righties. If you look at his career, same story. He struggled versus lefty. He, he's been good against righties. He also has a 53% ground ball rate, and in, in his career, he's been a 50% ground ball rate guy. So you know who this guy reminds me of? Justin Masterson. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the gold standard when you look at guys who get decent strikeout rates and ground ball rates. So anytime you can compare a guy to that, it's it's definitely a nice comparison. Yeah, Justin Masterson, I believe his velocity is up this year as well. I'm just checking out his page. I think he also is averaging over 93, uh, and I would be wrong about that. <laughs> no, you know what? It depends on what you look at. If you look at – ah, okay. So his, his fastball velocity – his four-seamer is uh, – Justin Verlander is is 93, but it's always been that. It's his sinker that's only 91 and change. So it depends on whether you look at the BIS data or the pitch FX data on Masterson. But they are pretty similar pitchers. Obviously, Ross throws a little harder right now, but they're both fastball slider guys who have mediocre control but good ground ball guys. So you know, I going into the year, I did not like Tyson Ross at all. But with that increased velocity and the results coming, I think he's an intriguing pickup, especially calling Peco Park home. Yeah, I wouldn't have given him a second look. And, I mean, he was working out of the pen. And with the positional adjustments that you see for pitchers out of Petco, really makes them look bad in terms of, you know, war. Guys like Jason Marquis and Clayton Richard, I mean, it really makes them look like the road is going to be very difficult, The you know, road trips and that kind of thing. So, I have shied away from Petco pitchers in the past for that exact reason, but I think I think Ross has got some real 
potential here. Yeah. All right. Let's move across the country to New York. I feel like we've talked about Ike Davis recently, but whether we have or not, we're going to talk about him again. And and that seems like he's been walking like crazy. I actually said to my brother, my brother's still a Mets fan. I'm, I'm you know a semi Mets fan, but I said it seems like every single game he's like one for two, one for three, a couple of walks and a couple of runs scored. So the power hasn't been there. But I'm looking at his walks now. He's had 29 plate appearances in August, and he's walked 11 times, and he's only struck out four times. So yeah, his walk rate in August 38 percent. And yeah. that doesn't even include today when he had another three walks and five plate appearances. Yeah, he's been insane actually since July 1. The 300 batting average, 467 on base, and a 450 slugging. That's taken his career line from a, or his, rather his season OPS from 521 to 633 in that time span. So a little over 100 points, which the problem becomes he's a first baseman and you're not going to roster a first baseman who's a walk specialist. <laughs> but the walks with any upswing in home runs that you might expect because he's been so low this year would be a nice com- uh, combination. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that it's baby steps for Ike Davis. He's walking a lot more. He's striking out less. You have to assume that that improved eye at the plate is going to lead to a power surge at some point this season. Well, the, the problem becomes, if you look at the last two years combined, you're at 900 plate appearances, 230-odd games, and he's got a 219, 311, 413 triple slash. So it's it, there's plenty of growth potential. I think he's still young enough to reach growth, but there's also raw numbers that tell you tread lightly, in, in my opinion. Yeah, the thing is also is that he's hitting a lot of pop-ups, and that's still been happening uh, since he's been returned back uh, to the majors. Right now, his season... Infield fly ball percentage is 16.4%. So that's obviously not a good thing. So that's still an issue for him. But, the, you know, the, I actually got a question before the podcast asking if we can talk about Tyson Ross and Ike Davis. And he mentioned, is Ike Davis somebody to go after an on-base percentage league? And, yeah, I think he is because he's a guy who's going to have a low batting average. But he's always had good walk rates previously. So he's always going to be a guy who is more valuable in OBP leagues than in batting average leagues. And right now, since he's walking a ton, then he's probably worth even more in OBP leagues. You obviously would like to see the power showing up in in some version at some point soon, but so far so good. I mean, he's getting on base and he's scoring runs. So, Yeah, it's, it's hard to gauge because the ground ball rate is up. The home run per fly ball rate has kind of normalized, but the pop-ups just throw everything into flux because the pop-ups or a no-sum activity, and if that doesn't change, I think you be, it becomes a guy who's kind of a, you know, maybe buy for a stretch to get some cheap on-base percentage production, but he's not a guy you can rely on until those pop-ups normalize somehow. Now, obviously, small sample size in August. It's only been 29 plate appearances, 18 at bat, so how many actual balls in play is probably very small, but... His batted ball distribution in August has been pretty hilarious. 36% line drive rate, 7% ground ball rate, 57% fly balls, and 25% pop-ups. You don't even have to have an infield to face that guy because outfielders could race in and just play the pop-ups, it sounds like. This is very true. Unbelievable. Uh, Personally, I'm optimistic on Ike Davis. If nothing else, it'll make him uh, a prime sleeper once again next year 
if the the Mets continue to have patience. Although, again, getting benched against lefties is an issue, and he's really going to have to turn around against them if he doesn't if he wants to become more than just a platoon player. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly right. All right. Speaking of struggling corner infielders, Will Middlebrooks, not Xander Bogarts, has been called up, and it looks like he'll be the third baseman for the Red Sox for the foreseeable future. I guess until he just completely stinks up the joint, and then they're like, all right, Xander, it's time for you to get your call up and make your debut. So are you any bit optimistic about him after he did his time in the minors, 10 home runs and 179 at-bats? He didn't really look any better. I mean, he walked a bit more. He struck out a bit less, but still doesn't look great, you know, during his time in AAA this year. Yeah, it, basically what he did in AAA this year isn't entirely dissimilar from what he did in the big leagues last year. The low on-base percentage, not a great isolated on-base percentage, and the batted ball rates when he's been up this year, you know, 55 games, 220-odd plate appearances, some fewer line drives, but nothing crazy. The biggest thing has been 100-point swing and batting average on balls in play now. From 335 to 229, you'd want to believe that the real Middlebrooks is somewhere in the middle. But the problem is there's such a disparity in terms of production that even square in the middle probably isn't good enough to hold a corner spot on a team that has dreams of division contention. Yeah, he's a guy who's probably worth more in batting average leagues versus on-base percentage leagues just because he never walks. Now, you obviously can hope that his minor league walk rate this year kind of translates into the majors this year because he basically almost doubled his walk rate. So, I mean, that is a good sign. Uh, The improved contact rate would be a good sign because he was striking out a ton this year. And when you strike out a ton and you don't walk any, that's what leads to a 624 OPS, which obviously isn't going to cut it as an everyday third baseman. Yeah, and you got to hope that he's going to take this Bogarts playing or, or basically blowing fire down his neck for his position as motivation to you know really pick up his game but at the same time this is the guy you traded Kevin Euclid to make room for and he played phenomenally for about a half a season last year you, you got to be scratching your head wondering what in the heck has happened here yeah and he's a guy after being called back up he's batting ninth in the batting order I'm sure there is a chance if he gets hot to move up a couple of spots but personally 12 team mixed league I wouldn't bother with him obviously a deeper league if you need a third baseman yeah you take the shot but I don't think he'll be any better, really, than replacement level in a 12-team mixer. Yeah, and it might be hard to be in any position to contend with a third-base situation in flux at this point. So if you're in a, a shallow mixed league and don't have a third baseman kind of nailed down, you're probably not in contention to begin with. All right, well, that's going to do it for us tonight. So join us again on Tuesday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Brandon Warren, uh, Mike Podhorzer, thanks for tuning in.